We were talking about masculinity outside, and I asked you if you knew what masculinity was. And I said, no, I didn't know what it was. Okay. Do you want to know what it is? Mm-hmm. Okay. So masculinity and femininity are two stories that people get told. And have you ever heard the story like um, blue is a boy color and pink is a girl color? Mm-hmm. And what do you think about that? I think that it's wrong because um, colors, they people don't own colors. Yeah. Everyone can like different colors, even if a boy likes pink color and a girl likes blue. Yeah. And then there are some other ones like boys don't cry or girls can't be strong. There's another one that only boys can do soccer and stuff. Oh. And what do you think about that? I don't think it's good because it doesn't matter what your gender is. It um, it matters if you like it or not. So masculinity is really just a big word for a story that boys are often told that they have to act out in their lives. It's like being given a script for a play and being told, you have to act out this script. But instead of it being for a play, it's for their whole lives. And do you think, if we think about the other side, about femininity, that's the script that girls are often given. What is the script that girls are often given? Mm, What have you heard about girls? That girls, they could not use to be not able to vote and they mm. like they were expected to stay home and sew mm-hmm. and yeah. girls are supposed to like pink and purple and stuff and and what do you think about that it's not fair because just because we're girls doesn't mean we have different rights as boys yeah i think you're right and if you think about boys too what, what would happen if a boy liked pink, but he was told he wasn't allowed to like pink? That would make him sad because um, he liked it and he would get blamed for liking that color. And you could think maybe even more important than a color would be if he was able to to feel things in life. Like, so yeah, what if and a, like not cry and yeah. stuff. And if he didn't like sports and didn't want to do it and they still made him, that would make him sad because even yeah. just because he's a boy doesn't mean he has to do all boy stuff. What do you think happens when we tell little boys that they shouldn't cry? Is that good? Is that bad? Is that... It's bad because, mm. um, because it's showing that they can let their feelings out and show other people that they feel comfortable. Yeah, that's right. What would you think if a boy, if you saw a boy cry? I would help him feel better. Yeah. Yeah, you just want him to feel better. I know. Okay, so if you were going to go tell your class tomorrow what masculinity is, what would you tell them? I would tell them that it is um, something that people tell stories about what girls and boys have to do Mm -hmm. and what girls can't do and what boys can't do yeah but remember what you said outside when I said it's a story that we tell people remember what you said to me I said it's a lie because um it's not fair and it's a lie that people have to act like that yeah thanks Amelie you're welcome In 2011, there was an article in the New York Times titled, Vicious Assault Shakes Texas Town. It's an article about an 11-year-old girl 
being raped, gang raped, by 18 males. And this article is just written terribly. Honestly, one of the worst written articles I've ever seen about a subject like this because somehow the reporter, with all of his patriarchal training from our society, writes this story in a way that almost blames the victim and subtly assumes such a low and harmful view of masculinity. So, after briefly describing in the article the um, cursory details of the allegations, the reporter writes, quote, The case has rocked this East Texas community to its core and left many residents in the working-class neighborhood where the attack took place with unanswered questions. Among them is, if the allegations are proved, how could their young men be drawn into such an act? So, did you hear how he put that? Remember, an 11-year-old girl has been brutally gang-raped by 18 men. And the first concern that appears in the article is, how could these young men have been drawn into such an act? Drawn in is a weird way of talking about 18 people raping an 11-year-old, especially when you see where the article goes. Uh, again, I quote, residents in the neighborhood where the abandoned trailer stands, known as the Quarters, said the victim had been visiting various friends there for months. They said she dressed older than her age, wearing makeup and fashions more appropriate to a woman in her 20s. She would hang out with teenage boys at a playground, some said. Where was her mother? What was her mother thinking? Said Miss Harrison, one of a handful of neighbors who would speak on the record. How can you have an 11-year-old child missing down in the quarters? Can you hear what's wrong with that? 18 men rape an 11-year-old girl. And suddenly, somehow the conversation shifts in this article to what the girl was wearing. How this 11-year-old must have been such a salacious little girl that wears makeup and hangs out in the wrong part of town. What was her mother thinking? What was her mother thinking? What is the writer of this article thinking? What is our society thinking? That we so often blame rape victims. We wouldn't do that for, say, mass shooting victims. We wouldn't say to the kid that got shot in his classroom, well, what was he doing there, just being a sitting duck in the classroom? What was his mother thinking? When it comes to gender and sexuality in our society, we have these views and these stories that are so harmful, where men are seen as these brainless brutes who are going to rape. And so it's up to women to watch out and be careful and not be in the wrong part of town and make sure your daughter's not wearing makeup. And no. How about instead of blaming the girl or her mother or anything other than the 18 people who raped a little girl, we start asking ourselves, what the hell is going on with masculinity in this country and in this species? Why have all the mass shootings since 1982 have all of the shooters but two been male and most of them white? Why are 89% of murder-suicides committed by men, 86% of 
of domestic violence documented in court cases. Why are they men? Why in the U.S. are one in three women victims of sexual assault at some point in their lifetime? And why are 63% of them not even reported to the police? If you're a man, you might wonder why somebody wouldn't report it. If you're a woman, you probably know why. Because we live in a society that claims that all men are created equal. But apparently that means certain kinds of men. And the way things are have left a backlog of 400,000 untested rape kits. It's left rapists who impregnate their victims with parental rights in 31 states. I know a young woman who was gang raped herself a few years ago. She's a black woman and the rapists were respected men and athletes at her school. In fact, one of the rapists went on to be a professional athlete and is still one to this day. My friend reported the incident to the police, but nothing was done. No arrests were made. All of this comes from somewhere. What is it? Why is there so much violence in the heart of man? Today on the Letters Podcast, we're talking about man. It's the follow-up to our woman episode. And, you know, 75% of the hosts on this podcast are men. We're not man-haters. But we do think that there are some fundamentally bad stories that infect the way that we think and live as men in the world. And we want to look at that, consider how could we reimagine what it is to be a man on planet Earth. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. When I was in grade nine, I sat next to a boy in my science class who I liked. We'd been in the same class since grade six, and I couldn't seem to get his attention. Why did I need his attention? I think it feels good to be liked by someone you like. I also know that I was really insecure and had been told all my life that being liked by a boy, maybe even this kind of boy, would mean I was really special. Was I actually going to be more special? Well, no, not really, but growing up in a context where I was told something didn't actually make it true, but it made other people treat me in such a way that impacted my life. So we'd sit together in science class and I'd start to notice something. Whenever I asked him a question, he would warm to me. There was a kind of pride in him being able to help me with something. And I felt myself slowly over time start to play dumb more and more, knowing that in actuality, I was actually going to be able to answer those questions. But it felt so good to be liked by him that I felt myself play dumb, play small, to make him feel better about himself. And the better he felt about himself, the more he liked me. I noticed this connection show up, maybe for the first time ever, that there was something about him being able to feel stronger than me that made it safe for him to like me. That's rough. I didn't know what to clap or do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that story, but it's that's a rough glimpse in the mirror at our culture. Yeah. Like the hidden scripts that we all operate in and make our jokes about and form our crushes with. And So tell me, the men at the table, 
when did you first start learning about the masculine script and masculinity? Do you have early memories of being told things like boys don't cry or men do this or hearing be a man? I actually think it starts earlier than that. Like, I think it starts in the gender roles. Like, it starts with you're a boy. So therefore, you know, like when you're a little boy, it's like, oh, he has a crush on this girl, you know, like, or this, you know, like you're kind of like sexualized very early, like all of us are. And if you're a boy, that means you like girls and that means it has to look like this. And that means you do these things because boys do this. Boys play with trucks and girls play with dolls and boys like blue and girls like pink. Boys like to play sports and girls like to play with the easy bake oven. <laughs> you know, I think that starts really early, like as a general script. Oh, yeah. And do you have a memory of when you first consciously heard those things and took them in? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I have tons of those. One one in particular, I think sports was a big male unifier and also a way to like connect with the men in the family. <laughs> and so like if I wanted to spend time like with my grandfathers, like I had to like sit and watch sports with them. You know, if I wanted to like spend time outside of like, you know, outings with like the parents, it was OK. My, my family loved basketball, but it's funny because I never did. But it was like I had to like learn that passion which I never really did, but it, it definitely felt pretty, pretty forced of like, you're going to learn to play basketball and we're going to like, we actually bought a basketball hoop <laughs> and it's like, this is what we're going to do. And you're going to do this because you're a boy, hmm. but not really feeling into that. Hmm. I used to love to wear high heeled shoes hmm. and not because they, in some way I was far too young to sexualize them or associate them with just some kind of fetish. I just liked the click clack sound they made on the floor. I just thought it was the best way to walk around. If you're going to walk around, <laughs> this incredible click clack sound is the way to do it. And my grandmother and my grandfather kept high heel shoes for me to wear and run around in to the horror of other people in my family. I couldn't understand why high heel shoes were just for girls. And they were. it wasn't that I wanted to wear high heel shoes all the time. They seemed awfully impractical to run around in the grass with. It's literally in the context of hardwood or linoleum floors. There was just an aesthetic delight to them. And as I became school-aged, there was such an obvious and pervasive pressure growing up in the South to identify with and participate in team sports, which I found horrid. <laughs> it's hot in Florida. You're supposed to stay outside for a long time, be physically active, start sweating. And in order to succeed, someone else has to be defeated. And I found that just revolting. It was more than I lacked the hand-eye coordination and natural athleticism to perform sports well. The idea of succeeding at the expense of someone else was anathema to my personality. And I was really emotionally vulnerable as a kid. I couldn't hold my feelings inside. And I found that made not only other male children uncomfortable, but adult men as well. There were constant social cues that to cry when you were sad made people very uncomfortable. Some people would literally say something like, be a man. But I think that was less difficult for me than people whose body language signaled distress. 
The only people I could kind of relate to as a child were the girls in school. They, I didn't have friends, but girls didn't actively antagonize me. And what I found pretty consistently is when a tear rolled down my cheek, one of the popular girls would come to my defense. In fact, as an adult, uh, years later, after becoming a pretty successful executive, I walked up to a girl I hadn't seen since grade school and thanked her for saving my life. And it's interesting to me how often my sexuality was questioned as I went into puberty and adolescence and persisted in a state of emotional openness and utter antipathy towards sports and athletics. It was like the fact that I didn't find my identity in the case of Florida literal tribal identities like Florida State football with Mm -hmm. the Seminoles um, that I couldn't be a man. But I preferred uh, walking outside. I preferred sitting under a tree and watching birds. I preferred cataloging how many species of spider were within a hundred steps of my home. And I didn't understand why those activities were any less manly or masculine than any others. And I was so often afraid of men, I didn't understand why being manly was desirable in the first place. Um, So I've always had this very strange experience of being pretty comfortably straight. My sexuality is not something I really struggled with, but so many people, so many friends and family genuinely did. And the criteria by which they questioned me seemed so arbitrary and confusing to me, kind of at the time and to this day. (laughs) Hmm. It's so strange that the three men here on this podcast, none of us seem to really have been comfortable with traditional scripts we were handed with masculinity. I mean, as far as like, are you even a sports guy, William? I don't think any of us are really. It's... I'll go to live games because the energy is fun. Mm, and okay. the, like, mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I can't watch on TV really. And I don't really, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't follow teams. So no. I don't know. It's interesting because I mean, you guys, I'm like, yeah, I, I feel I'm really lucky that I had really strong women in my life. But, you know, I remember walking around in my mom's high heels and, and her laughing and I'm sure she would have put makeup on me if I, whatever. I mean, she was, <laughs> I didn't get that directly from parenting that I needed to necessarily, that I wasn't supposed to cry or that I didn't get any of that stuff, thankfully. But I speak English and I watch television, and I read mm. books and I know the phrase, be a man. And at some point I heard that, I don't know when, it didn't stick out to me as necessarily when, but you can't help but as a man in the society, get crafted in what does it mean? Be a man. That has meaning, unspoken meaning. And it is spoken sometimes, but there is like this just general like, buck up, be strong, be a man, hold it inside, mm-hmm. take care of your stuff so that you can someday take care of your woman. <laughs> you know, I mean, all these like unspoken stories. Um, I bought into that one big time. <laughs> yeah. And I did too. I did too. And not necessarily because I thought a woman couldn't take care of herself. But I was taught that's what a woman wanted. And if I want to be the kind of person that can have a wife and have a family, I need to make sure that I'm the kind of person that can take care of that family because that's what a woman's going to look for. And so all those 
scripts, I think, were were handed to me. But I never felt like a like a manly man. <laughs> you know, I never I never groups of guys that would want to get together and do the typical manly things. I'm like, I was gonna stay home and practice guitar. <laughs> that was my experience. I don't know. Mm. This immediately leads me to think about men's emotional health and well-being and how much gets disconnected from the person when scripts like Be a Man come in, come onto the scene. So to back this up and give you a little bit of a developmental psychology perspective, there was a woman named Carol Gilligan who started doing research with girls about what is moral development? How do we make moral decisions? Because so much of the research, particularly what was done by Kohlberg and his theory of moral development, said that people make moral decisions in a certain way. And there's a hierarchy that you are more moral if you make decisions that reflect the top tier of decision-making. And whenever women were put through this grid, they would always come up short as being morally inferior because they didn't make decisions in the way that it it was represented on this grid. So Carol Gilligan started doing this research with young girls and her work is documented in a really famous psychology book called In a Different Voice. But what she found is that around puberty, when girls were starting to be sexualized and their bodies were becoming something different, it was changing the way that other people spoke to them and they were realizing something about themselves and what it meant to have a voice. And so this, the phenomenon of self-silencing started to show up around puberty, that girls who could retain a sense of justice and a voice early on and say things like, that's not right, that's not fair, around puberty would start to say things like, well, you know, right? Or, ah, oh, but, you know, what do I know? After they would say something with some strength, then there would be this kind of cutting down of voice. So whenever I talk about that research, people are really outraged and they think, oh my goodness. But the fascinating thing about Gilligan's work, and she talks about this in a book called The Birth of Pleasure, that that shift of the self-silencing of I want to say the thing I want to say, but I can't, happens for boys around five. Mm. That it's happening so young for boys that they're learning this script of be a man and shut down and don't share your feelings. And if you're crying, it means that you're weak and you're like a little girl as if that's something bad, Mm. but that shift and that I know something inside my body. I have a sense of knowing about what feels right, about what feels good, about connection, about what I need, that that switch gets turned off sometimes earlier than five, but predominantly around five. And so when we talk about the injustice for women, about the scripts of femininity, one of the things that I often talk about is I think that the patriarchal construction of masculinity hurts boys and men too. Mm -hmm. There's so many men that I see in therapy who talk about feeling like they are alone in life because they've always been told that they can't connect with other men, except if they're angry about sports games or if there's a sense of violence or aggression. Yeah. And that they can sometimes connect with women, but it's threatening for their wives or their partners if they're connecting with too many other women emotionally. And so there's this isolation. It's like these walls get built up to protect the narrative of masculinity. But then inside there's a there's a person who just wants to be human like everybody else, but has been so cut off from all of these dimensions of the fullness and the richness of an emotional life from sensing, from being connected to the body and feeling and vulnerability 
that there is aloneness on the inside. Mm. Being a man right now in this world is kind of weird and confusing. Sometimes it's just generally kind of scary because I don't know what it is to be a man anymore. And I'm afraid that that I'm doing it all wrong and that I, I like things that aren't masculine. I've always been really deep feeling and so I, I used to cry a lot as a child and I learned to not cry and to not show those emotions as much and when they show them and when I show them I, I'm just generally embarrassed. To me being a man used to be something that made me proud and superior. Now I see it as a source of violence, privilege and oppression. Being a man today means acknowledging the spoiled life we have and speaking up and empowering those that do not have the same privilege. So for me, being a man has meant a constant confrontation with standards of masculinity. I grew up in a culture where the term biblical manhood was often used, and so I looked at Jesus as the ultimate example of masculinity, like my Christian community told me. Uh, and I was fine with that because I was a sensitive kid and Jesus seemed like a really sensitive and caring guy. Uh, but eventually I noticed that the men who followed this ideal of biblical manhood, uh, they would often attribute these qualities to Jesus that I never would have expected. Uh, for example, physical strength, uh, because Jesus was a carpenter, I guess. Uh, so the more I moved toward this ideal of masculinity, the more I felt uncomfortable in my own skin and eventually I noticed that no man in my life seemed like he was comfortable with who he was. So at this point, I've decided that there is no way to achieve masculinity. And the boy who eventually becomes a man in his own mind inevitably feels weak at some point and is pulled along toward more and more toxic forms of masculinity. So my hope now is that men of the younger generations will learn from movements like feminism and see the freedom that can be found in throwing away useless gender norms. Yeah. I, I can't be like you guys and name the study right now off the top of my head. <laughs> and I think it's peer reviewed. So I'm doing good. <laughs> uh, so warning there uh, for all you skeptics. Um, but it talked about how the difference between boys and girls in the language centers early on and how uh, girls, you know, by age six have a broader language center than boys to express all types of like range of emotions and how boys don't but early on boys are tend to be more emotional than girls but they said that right around six or seven that starts to change uh, the study talked about how girls understand relationships better and they can identify who their best friends are very clearly and know who that is where by the time boys get into preteen teenage years they often don't have a best friend. And if they do have a best friend, when, when the study would talk to that other boy, that other boy would not identify that mm -hmm. one as his best friend. And kind of where the study led ultimately was male loneliness and talking about how by the time men get married, they oftentimes, the women is, woman is the uh, social center for their relationships. Um, and so then if they get divorced, which half, over half of marriages do get divorced, um, men are often dying of loneliness because they didn't develop the skills early on. Like, like even watching 
older men to older women in terms of like older women are very good at having, like I was talking to Ruth, Science Mike's mom, you know, she's like, I got my girls, my Tallahassee girls, and we talk and we do this and we go here together. And you you don't see that the same type of camaraderie as much with older men as you do with women. And I, even when they did the studies, they said it was often worse for uh, LGBT men, but not LGBT women, which showed it was very like much a strong, like a gender thing, that there's something happening with boys at a young age. And, and one of the things they marked was fear being gay, being a motivator for men shutting down their emotions and their feelings with other men and not developing strong, intimate relationships mm. with other men. And I, I don't know what that is. Like there's something in our culture that puts this pressure on us to not be vulnerable and intimate with other men. Like there's this yeah. silence there. And it's like, like you said, it's only through like sports or it's through like certain type of pre-approved exercises or activities that we can express that emotion. I'm going to find this study. So and I, uh, uh, the guys. study is sex differences in neural processing of language among children by Berman, Booth and Bitten published in Neuropsychologia, March 2008. Wow. Yes, Berman, Booth, and Bitchin. Oh, <laughs> Bitchin from the I, University of Haifa, which is a lovely town. I had an Uber driver last year at some point that was, from, I think he's from Morocco maybe or something, but he was talking to me about being a man here in the States and how you can't have friends. Like, you can't. He's like, back in Morocco, I think it was Morocco. The guys, we'd hold hands and we'd, cuddle up and we'd walk, take walks together and do whatever and just be like and like here you're, oh, that's weird. you're gay <laughs> if you do that there are people I, I think of this guy there's this guy at the gym that I see him interacting he's like one of the trainers there I was like I really want to be friends with that guy I'm imagining that he's gay he's, he's very flamboyant very gregarious looks like a real fun time <laughs> to me I don't know how I could ever like and some of it's just me being a shy person i guess but i don't know how to like go to a a man and, hey do you want to get some coffee want to be friends friends and same with a woman like I, I wouldn't know how to do that as a man it's not just that i'm afraid to do it i'm afraid with all the roles and scripts that we have in our society everybody's probably going to assume that's a sexual thing immediately from a man coming up, hey, do you want to go grab some coffee? Like, maybe I'm just thinking that, but that's the script that's been handed to me. I'll come off predatorily in some way or something. And that sucks. It does, like, these stories do isolate us because there's a lot of people that I come across, I'm like, I would love to, like, get to know you. You seem like an amazing person. Um, but I don't even know how to start that happening without seeming like a creep because of, of what a script of what a man is supposed to do when he meets another man. And the only culturally acceptable ways in America of like having close friendships with a man are kind of like, you want to watch the game? You want to go hunting? You want to kill something? Do you want to watch violence in some way? Like, mm. So that we, we can, there's enough blood around that we're not gay or we're not a woman. Have you ever like seen this thing? It's funny because when you said it, I instantly heard it in my head and I was like, I should say that. No, that's. That's dumb. But like when you said that and like, what do I do when I want to go up to another man? I want to be like, gay? <laughs> like, right? Like people say that. Like that's a thing, right? That you hear all the time. Or, hey, bro, no homo, but, you know, like you want to like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's like there's always this mm. clarification and there's always this like a check. Don't be gay. Yeah. You know, mm. gay, you're gay. Oh, my God. You know, and like, yeah, I don't know what that is inside of our 
psyches that feels like we need to keep each other in line. Like there's something in the like male script that when someone seems to deviate or like show emotion or do something that's perceived to be homosexual, it's instantly like we we do it as little boys uh, as well too in our culture. And I don't know where that comes from or why that is, but it's prevalent. I see it in, in, in grown men. Like they, they do that too. And it's like the way of we're on, be on the team, like in the, in the bad sense, you know, like this, and we don't do this if you're on the team and guys don't do this. And we do this. And I think it comes from agriculture. <laughs> oh. Tell us. If you look at hunter gatherer societies of which there are a few still on this planet, modern civilization is quickly driving them to the margins and towards effectively cultural extinction. But there are, hunter-gatherer cultures left on this planet, they tend to be much more egalitarian. They also don't have any institution necessarily corresponding to what we would call marriage. When we look at the relationship between men and women, pre-agriculture, things are just different. Now, of course, pre-agrarian cultures were not in ancient times or today monolithic. There's incredible diversity, as you would imagine, any grouping of homo sapiens would be but when you see the rise of agriculture where you have to have a plot of land so this is the first time anyone's considering themselves maybe owning land or defending very particular patches of land and you're cultivating crops on it male labor becomes extremely valuable and you need more people you can trust to work your crops and to engage in animal husbandry And when that shift happens, anthropologically, we see this change in the way men and women relate to where the primary value in women becomes their capacity to make more farmhands. And therefore, men and the male experience was heavily elevated. And you see marriage come into the picture following the rise of agriculture. And marriage at first... (laughs) although some would say it is a spiritual institution, historically we see it primarily as a means of transferring a piece of property, which was a woman, oddly enough, often in conjunction with a dowry. So basically for doing someone the favor of taking a daughter, you were paid financially. It wasn't that simple though. It also represented kind of a a tribal or cultural alliance. So marriages were strategic and women were property that were used to make more laborers and that's a really terrible deal for women and so as we advanced culturally that that was the seeds of this institution we now call patriarchy and thankfully over time women have indicated they are not property they don't (laughs) want to be property that's a ridiculous demeaning conception And we saw these kind of strategic marriages fall out of cultural favor in most of the world. And instead, they were replaced with a new institution of romantic marriage and romantic love. Uh, But romantic love, through some lenses, is another way to keep women in their place. It conditions women not to desire men, but to desire being desired by men and being in competition with one another for said desire. So the funny thing about this this patriarchal construction, it not only prevents men from having intimacy with other men, it also tries to set up women as adversarial, which 
limits their capacity to collectively work against their oppression. Hmm. So whenever I see commercials for diamonds or flowers, I always wanted to see at the bottom this ad brought to you by the patriarch. <laughs> <laughs> the patriarch. Right? Nice. Because women, you are a thing to be wooed so that you can become a man's beloved property. <laughs> and so patriarchy has been a real bag of shit for literally every human being. It's been the least shitty for men. But as we've discussed in here, it has also been shitty for men. It has been much more shitty for women. It's been even more shitty for people with non-binary gender identities or trans people or gay or lesbian people. That In the patriarchy, those are truly aberrant ideas because it undermines this concept that men's role is to run society and women's role is to make more people and you have to fit into this reproductive framework in order to have value. So we've been in this period of upheaval and thank God we have been in a period of upheaval where for the last couple hundred years we've been renegotiating the social contract and it's created new senses of identity for people. Women's liberation and the feminism movements have offered primarily white women a new identity and a new script to create. Womanism has crafted an even more inclusive vision of progress for women, especially women of color. The civil rights movement has offered identity for people of color other than as the property of European Americans. LGBTQ advocacy has created new identity and pride for people on those different spectrums of sexual orientation and gender identity. And thank God, these are all amazing developments in society that I celebrate and that I relish. But something has been missed as we've renegotiated the social contract. There's no new script for men. Men are still working with an ancient script where they're supposed to be in charge and stoic and self-sufficient. And, and the outcome of that, as we've discussed, is this loneliness and alienation and desperation that men almost universally feel and feel much more intensely as they age. We're finding that men today in America who are in their 50s and 60s often report having no close friendships and feeling unable to be in close relationship even with their spouse. Is it any wonder that men in that condition are so angry that they so readily vote for demagogues that they pour vitriol onto social media because they don't feel some abstract sense that masculinity is in decline? They personally are experiencing a collapsing and deteriorating life. I actually think that this phenomenon, the inability of men to relate to each other or to women, to be in physical contact with each other, to only be in physical contact with women when it involves sexual arousal, is linked to the male tendency towards mass violence and violence in general. Yeah. So we have this ancient script that says, if you're a man, here's who you are. You're a powerful protector over your family. You're the leader in your work and the head of your household. That emotionally you are strong and you are silent and you are self-reliant. And that masculinity is a members-only enterprise. No one without a penis is permitted in this institution. And no one who's not attracted to 
traditional conceptions of women are allowed to be masculine. And this is destroying our world. This attitude not only makes men miserable, it is the single greatest obstacle to creating universal human justice and equality. Because every step forward for people who are marginalized and oppressed represents the last bone of self-worth that men are receiving in their social script. And I've seen like two movements attempting to create a new identity for men. One is kind of a, a faux progressive classic liberalism represented by men like Jordan Peterson, mm. where men become aware rightfully of the problems in society and try to participate in solutions. And because of emotional fragility, encounter great guilt and shame when anyone names the role that men, especially white men, play in societal oppression. And if this only script offered to them is that of the repentant oppressor, it's not psychologically palatable. And so men like Jordan Peterson offer a view of the world where the problem is not only inequality, but the current oppression and backlash against white men. Mm. And that movement is troubling because of its scale. But if you want to see a really virulent response to creating a new script, you need look no farther than the internet culture movement called the incel movement or involuntary celibacy. I've recently been digging deep into this based on uh, listener questions and feedback. And involuntary celibates view themselves as men who are subhuman, that they are so unattractive that women are not interested in having sex with them. This is a very sex-focused and sexual frustration-focused movement. But what these men believe is to fight the fact that they self-identify as subhuman or unattractive. They think that prior to women's liberation, they still would have been able to, through the force of social pressure and institution, guarantee themselves a bride. And so it, I find it simultaneously heartbreaking that there's a large, and I mean a large number of men, who view themselves as genetically non-viable from a psychological perspective that, that's terrifying. But that in response to that amount of self-loathing, they project onto women the idea that all women, including attractive women, are subhuman. And not only does this movement engage in all kinds of harassment, and active persecution of women online, we're starting to see acts of mass violence come out of the incel movement. And so the stakes are very high here. We should rightfully, in my opinion, focus on the perspectives of women and people of color and LGBTQ folks as we talk about liberation because they are the ones being oppressed. But if we don't as a society, and especially as men, and I might even say, especially as white men, intentionally create new positive identities and social scripts for men, this is a war that will continue to our mutual peril. Yeah, as a person of color, I'm very troubled by a lot of the movements you've been sharing and talking about. I would love to see young white men embrace 
or at least wrestle with like critical race theories, like intersectionality, like instead of running to a Jordan, Jordan Peterson for some type of relief, why don't you study Kimberly Crenshaw? Why aren't you reading Black Feminist Lit like Bell Hooks or Brittany Cooper? It's funny because I don't find white men willing to wrestle with that. Like they'll they'll run to the white scholar who makes them feel safe in their ideology and their perception, but won't actually wrestle with someone who has a different life experience. That can also speak as an academic person into the lived experiences of like all people. And I do think there has been this tendency for white men to see their lived experience as the universal experience, but unable to see the universal experience through the lens of marginalized people. So what you're saying is so huge because I think what we're asking for is both things to be done like simultaneously. Mm -hmm. We're asking for the new scripts that are being created to be valued and, and honored and taken seriously Wow. And it's funny because actually, I think if white men spent time with black women, it would help their identity so much more. <laughs> like, I really mean that. Like, it's funny because to me, those those two identities are probably the most polarized in our society. And I actually think if those are the two that are able to come together and actually if 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 white men are able to humble themselves, like Kendrick says, <laughs> like and sit down and actually allow black women to show them something about the world that they might not be able to see. It will help reinform their identity and help them get a new script. I think if men just listen to women in general, <laughs> even even white women, mm-hmm. uh, but let alone even the somebody even further away from their lived experience, I think would help bridge the gaps that they're looking to bridge, but often, like you said, running to the wrong type of ideological teachers to do that. And one of the things I do, I do think you've forgotten there was uh, the prevalence of the alt-right mm. as an ideology and movement that white men are, are running to. And what's funny is I've, I've, saw, a great point. I've seen, seen some recent da- data that shows that since Trump's election, if anyone is moving closer to that, it is white men. White men are not moving in mass towards a more progressive view of the future. They are moving towards very regressive views uh, out of any other group of people. I think it is the, the cultural frustration you're talking about, but also, like you said, they're running to demagogues and they're running to white supremacy and neo-Nazism. And well, that's not as bad. And at least I had we had dignity when we believed that. Or, you know, what about our ancestors here? You know, I don't know how to heal that or fix that outside of kind of what you just said. So using that framework, how does how do white men embrace a new script? What kind of internal work, Mike, have you done in your life to write a new script? And can you offer that to white men? I think the first thing is is giving yourself some grace. So I didn't I'd never heard the word patriarchy until I was in my 30s. I grew up in the southeast. Unless you're on a university campus, which I didn't go to college. No one says the word patriarchy. I understood white supremacy to be the KKK lynching people and burning crosses. And I was like, well, thank goodness white supremacy is over. And so at some point, if you're a person that lives in community or or is curious or engages other perspectives, you will find new information that is shocking and frightening and gives you a sense of grief and lament and guilt that is a a process that is necessary and psychological. What I've noticed is so often white men will say, I'm not going to apologize for being a white man to which I would say, no one wants you to apologize for being a white man. No one would care if you did apologize for being a white man. Uh, Even if you did so with a sincere intent, it would probably be read as you seeking emotional attention 
from everyone else. <laughs> no one wants your apology. If people want anything from you, it's just your participation in making things better. And in order to make things better, we have to do the psychological work of coming to grips with the actions we've taken in our life without any intent of harming others. Mm -hmm. So if there was no intent to harm others, it means I really shouldn't feel guilty if once I become aware, I begin to change the way I live. No one can ask anything more from you than once you are aware to begin to change and to try to make things better. And as you do so, the best thing that happened in my life was identifying helpful authors and voices of advocacy online to whom I listened. By listening, I mean I just read what they wrote. I didn't interact with them. I didn't ask them to explain more to me. If they provoked questions, I went on Google. I searched for answers. I went to their websites. I looked for reading lists. I didn't ask marginalized people to do my work of understanding for me. And that seems arduous, and it seems like a lot of work, and it is. But if patriarchy and white supremacy really are insidious institutions that result in the destruction of the quality of human life and of human life itself, well, surely reading a few books is a sacrifice that we can all make. Surely listening patiently uh, without pestering the people doing some of this work is valuable. And as I've, I've kind of looked through that, I've begun to question the fundamental reaction that men have had engineered into them by society, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing you've got to be aware. A lot of the choices you're making, these reflexive feelings, they were designed, in some cases intentionally, and in some cases on accident, to be conditioned into you to have you play a particular role in society. And if you're a middle-income or lower white man, your psychology has been engineered to benefit more wealthy white men. You're the front lines defending a collection and an aggregation of wealth at the top of the income ladder wow. by white men who care nothing about you. I, I have a, a dear friend who has is very poor and lives in the rural South and was very excited when a wealthy man invited him onto his property to hunt. My cousin is an excellent hunter. And so he would go onto this land and hunt with the guy. He carried all of his guns. He taught the man to shoot. He did all of this labor of value. And he was excited because he didn't have to pay to go hunt on these hunting grounds. But about the time this very wealthy man learned to shoot well, he stopped inviting my friend onto his property. And I think that small story so well captures what's really happening to men in the rural South and in the Midwest who support political movements that don't actually benefit them at all. If we look into this and we start to question the psychology that's been engineered into us by institutions and by systems, there's a few things I believe. One, I believe that love knows no lack. That if we're people motivated by love and by faith, I would dare say even 
by Christ than the kind of zero-sum economic arguments that we so often resort to don't represent love because love is patient and kind and generous. And also, what we traditionally think of as courage, I would call like a, a Hollywood cowboy western masculinity, shows no courage whatsoever. Real courage is being vulnerable. Real courage is admitting your feelings, even when it means they hurt. Real courage is the capacity to weep for yourself as well as with others. Real strength is the power to admit weakness. And so I propose, and this is a conversation I'd love to hear, not only from the people in this room, but everyone listening, but I propose shifting the script in four simple ways. The first is to go from being a powerful protector to being a powerful advocate. Man, your voice is needed in culture. We need to be advocates for women, for people of color, for anyone marginalized in society. But an advocate stands up for people without standing over them. And an important consideration as we move in our identities is to understand our voice is not the most important in the room anymore. And it never should have been. Two is to move from the the self-conception as a leader or head of household to a partner. I think starting in our homes and going into the way that we conduct business, we've got to drop winner-takes-all approaches. We've got to drop measuring success as how many people report to you Mm. and instead partner with people in creating solutions to life's problems, including those in the home and in business. I think emotionally, instead of being strong, silent, and self-reliant, men should be vulnerable, empathetic, and communal. I think we should all look a lot more like Fred Rogers. And finally, we need to move from a members-only, penis-based conception of masculinity to something more inclusive. Can we all just understand that if a trans man is also a man, it does not make me less of a man? Can we all understand that if a woman speaks her opinion loudly and boldly, that in no way makes me less of a man? Can we understand that when men express traditionally feminine traits, that in no way threatens masculinity? If anything threatens masculinity, it is hyper-masculinity. Because hyper-masculinity sets us at odds with the rest of the world and with each other. And hyper-masculinity is problematic because when all you have is hyper-masculinity, everything looks like a target to be destroyed, to be defeated, to be owned, and to be occupied. And if there's anything we've learned as men is that it's awfully lonely at the top of a hill made of other people's bodies. He is 
kind and funny and wise and tender and very, very strong. To this day, if my dad is in the room, if he's giving me a hug, if he's talking to me on the phone, I feel the safest. He is the safest space. Of course, the older I've gotten, the more I've learned that that's not always the way that masculine energy is used. I've seen it used as as strength that is more concerned with taking and conquering than it is with loving and protecting. And it's really frustrating because I can see that masculinity can be so beautiful if it wasn't so toxic. When I hear or think of the word masculinity, my heart doesn't even know where to begin processing. I'm found trailing through a spectrum of emotions. I feel an immediate wall of defense build up around me. I am guarded and untrusting because thinking of masculinity directs me to think of oppression and patriarchy, big muscles and aggression often confused with power. My defensiveness is followed by sadness. Sadness because I know my husband is expected to have big muscles and aggression. I've been taught by my world that masculinity means he isn't allowed to cry. He isn't allowed to earn less money than me. He isn't allowed to appear soft or physically weak. Those things aren't masculine. After that sadness, I choose to push myself towards hope. Hope that one day when we might have a son, that we can change what this word means to him and for him, so that he may cry and cry freely, pursue dreams for passion's sake, not salary's sake, and go to the gym as often or as little as he like. The term masculine and masculinity has a lot of baggage for me because when I was younger, as a female, I would be told a lot, stop acting masculine, stop acting like a man, stop acting like a boy, act more like a woman. And if I was behaving masculine, then I would be told, stop acting like a lesbian, you're acting like a lesbian. And as an adult now, it is really painful to think about how I felt about my own body and my own behaviors for so long because I was told that, you know, being masculine was wrong and I had to be this like ladylike type of lady that isn't and wasn't at all me. One thing that I have learned from my non-binary friends is that not all masculinity is toxic. Um, Maybe a year ago, if I heard the word masculinity, it conjured up negative images for the most part because so much of my exposure to masculinity has been toxic. However, as I construct my own idea of my own gender, I don't need to be afraid of masculinity itself. Only um, the type of masculinity that our culture glorifies things like violence and um, narratives of like domination and conquering and things like that don't have anything to do or don't need to have anything to do with masculinity itself. I think there is immense beauty in both the feminine and the masculine, and I believe that we all have both within us. But masculinity in our culture tells our little boys and men that they are not allowed to fear, to express sadness, to show affection to their male friends and family members because to be soft, to be vulnerable, is to be weak. I look at these sensitive, compassionate little boys and wonder 
At what age will fat be robbed from them? I wanted to make a link between what you had said, William, and and why it might be hard for some people to hear what Mike was saying. And I think you got to that in its essence. But most of us know that privilege is invisible to us if we have it. We don't we don't know that we have it if we have it. And so first of all, there there might be some men who've benefited from masculinity and might not even know it. But then we're less likely to challenge the things that have benefited us in some way. And so when men do become aware of their privilege, it feels threatening at times to imagine sharing that with somebody else, if especially uh, if it has been of value to them or they've perceived it to be of value to them. And like you were saying, Mike, the narrative of masculinity prevents us from going to the place of vulnerability, which allows us to consider other people's perspectives. So the thing that prevents men from changing is written into the privilege and is written into the thing that then keeps them isolated. And it's this this feedback loop. The masculinity feedback loop keeps men alone and keeps men feeling like they have to protect even more and more and more their identity because they're feeling like they're going to have to give something up that, that's been of value to them. So I like to think about Mary Parker Phillips' narrative of power and how in masculinity as power has been constructed, power is the ultimate, but power is defined as power over. Mm. I only have power if it's in a hierarchy and you are at the bottom. And so it's threatening to feel like there could be a shift in power where the contrast is we could have power with, because it feels like to men that that's giving up power. That feels Mm. like it's giving up the thing that makes them valuable or makes them secure. But power with often shows up in, in feminist constructions of power that it, it calls out the idea or the myth of the lone genius. It calls out the myth that you actually are over somebody else if you have power and that that's real power. And it says that we can actually be more powerful when we are together. But that might feel threatening if it feels to certain men like it means giving up mm. something that they've benefited from. I have a thought interchange that could be very helpful. So you identify as a feminist, correct? Oh, um, yeah. It seems that there is a lot of vitriol in male culture towards mm-hmm. feminism and feminist ideology and black feminism. And, and, and I don't know if it's from a fundamental misunderstanding of that or if it's just uh it's almost kind of like you're born with it you know like you know you're kind of born thinking gloria steinem is a you know is an enemy to your gender right like or women that have represented that in public culture can you maybe break down what feminism is kind of for men because mm-hmm. <laughs> i, I think for that, women and for women yeah, yeah. too because there are there are lots of women who do, do participate in the patriarchy too especially coming from the christian background i've seen a, a lot of the ways women as well, Christian conservative women tend to rally to that same uh, understanding. So can you maybe break that down? Thank you for asking, for giving giving me space to, to name some of those things. I think without trying to polarize the feminist community in my response, because there are a few different camps and yeah. sometimes there can be some, some frustration and disagreement between them. I think one of the things that we advocate for as feminists would be the equality of women and men 
but not within a patriarchal system that's actually also harmful to men. So I don't want to be equal in a system that's destructive to all people. I don't want to be equal where, you know, because of the sexual objectification of women, we think about, okay, let's just sexually objectify men and then everybody's equal. I think I want to dismantle as a feminist the power structures where and the narratives and the institutions which are harmful and erosive to the value of all people where because of how a person is born how they identify that somehow they are not allowed access to things that have been traditionally identified as existing only in a masculine space and i think that i want that for men too i want men to be allowed to experience the freedom from the rigid and isolating and erosive narratives that actually decrease the fullness of their existence and their humanity hmm. under patriarchy. So I don't just want equality in a system where people still get hurt. I want freedom for people. Hmm. It's important for that to coexist with an intersectional feminism and say, I don't just want feminism to benefit white women, right? When we look at the womanist movement and the feminist movement and how women were saying, white women were saying, I want a job. And the black women were saying, I've been working for decades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so your feminism is a white feminism if it doesn't acknowledge how racism, colonization, and sexism all work together Ooh. to keep certain people under power structures that other people get to benefit from. Mm. So to the women who are listening to this, who might think, oh, this is an episode on masculinity. What, what do I have to do here? How can I actually take anything away from this? I want to talk to the women for a second. We can actually endorse toxic masculinity. And we can do that by asking men to shut their emotions down because it's not convenient for us and it threatens our narrative of femininity. We want someone to rescue us, to be taller and stronger than us so that they can carry us into the bedroom when we so we can feel petite and fragile in their arms. We want to enjoy our silence and self-silencing to be chosen by a man who wants to enjoy a woman who is less threatening than him. And in doing that, what we're doing is we're propping up a system that also hurts men and reducing their existence to something that protects our fragile femininity. And so we need to be aware of how we perpetuate toxic masculinity narratives that actually harm the men that we love. Brene Brown talks about this so famously in one of her books where she says at the end of one of her talks about vulnerability, a man came up to her and said, like, that, that's a great idea, but for women, because if I'm vulnerable, I'm going to get crucified mm -hmm. by the women in my life. And so vulnerability is something that women are readily eager to accept for women, but it feels scary for us because we've bought into a story of masculinity that we're not safe if we don't have a bigger, stronger male there to protect us, even emotionally to protect us. And so we prop men up and keep them isolated because it's scary for us when they show vulnerability in a way that confronts our depictions of the masculine narrative. So what happens is I see men come into therapy primarily because their wives have asked them to because their wives don't like their anger. Mm. But what we see is that that is the cherry on top of a whole developmental narrative and historical narrative that has gotten them there. 
like I was talking about with Gilligan's work, we see the shutting down of emotions in boys, but because of the power over construct and because of power over and the aggression that comes with that, the anger that men experience is often the only socially sanctioned emotion that they can have. So anger, particularly anger or sometimes sadness about sports games. But all of the protective defenses that they've used to keep all of the other emotions out and shoved down start to spew out between the cracks in the form of anger. And that threatens relationship because it doesn't feel safe. And how is it possible that men can then get close to other people, including their partners, if the only way that they can emotionally connect is actually through anger at somebody else. So I often see men come into therapy and they'll talk about having anger and angry outbursts to their kids and feeling like they don't understand why. But when I tell them that actually the important part in changing, the most difficult part in changing that cycle is learning to connect with all of the core affect that's been underneath there all along that they've shoved down, that's the way that we change and we help change the cycle of anger and the emotional regulation it means confronting a narrative of masculinity that either they have benefited from or that they're terrified to confront because it means sacrificing a sense of identity that although doesn't work for them is something that's known. I would like to offer like a little word to maybe those who feel overwhelmed or maybe even hopeless in in the face of some of these ideas because maybe so much of your world has been built upon these traditional scripts you don't even know how to start moving towards a less toxic masculinity without feeling like you're you know maybe you you hear these stories and and you're you're immediately going to like well i can't be like the moroccan guy and hold my friend's hands i'm not going to become these just or even a mr rogers character that mike is talking about maybe it's just not something you even you might be revolted by the idea of like trying maybe if you're a hunter and you're like and a sports I, you just are that kind of manly man i think there's room in this world for all the stuff that we've been saying all the stuff that mike was saying about and and hillary about the changing a subtle changing of dynamic of power it doesn't mean you again that you don't have any power it doesn't mean that you have to become the guy that cuddles with your guy friends on the sofa and watches Grey's Anatomy rather than the football game. Ain't nothing wrong with Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Ain't nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with Grey's Anatomy. Really? Okay. I've watched a lot more Grey's Anatomy than I've watched football. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's room for generals in the army that are still... There's room for hunters and for sports people and for big, strong men and ladies that are like, ooh, look at his muscles. I I don't know that all of that, I mean, it's not going to go away, but I think we can re-listen to some of this stuff, some of that stuff that Mike and Hillary and William were saying. And see, it doesn't have to be a thing that you totally change everything about your personality, change everything about your desires and ways of enjoying yourself, but we can find ways that our quest for power is more exploitative and change that to be more cooperative. We can find ways that our desire for sportsmanship and competition actually end up being oppressive in ways that we live rather than adventurous and cooperative and empowering. I just, I'm, I was trying to identify any flags that might pop up for people that feel like I, I'm not Mr. Rogers. Does that mean I'm a bad person? And I don't think the world needs to be entirely made of Mr. Rogers. 
I mean, yes. <laughs> However, if you had to have a planet composed of a single person, <laughs> I would yeah. propose Mr. Rogers as a reasonable candidate. But <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, in seriousness, I totally agree. As long as there's room for a woman who's a general who's like mm-hmm. yeah, ah, rah, rah, absolutely rah. and there's room for a man who says "Ooh, look at her muscles yes and there's mm-hmm. room for women who play basketball and men who weave baskets and mm-hmm. women who chew tobacco and wear camo and go deer hunting and men who like to make cocktails you know that's what yeah. i like i mean ideally wouldn't it be great if someday the the phrase be a man was as silly as saying like be a green-eyed person <laughs> like what do you mean be a be a green-eyed person what is that what is the story that you're assuming with that yeah i remember growing up in the church and everybody had a copy of uh wild at heart <laughs> john eldridge and the uh, companion book captivating about women being beautiful by his wife and i remember taking that in at one point and thinking that that was really helpful because it gave me a way to expect something from men, to know what to expect. And then if I didn't get that, to have something to point them to, to challenge that. And over time, starting to dismantle that as I, particularly as I started taking classes in in developmental psychology and looking at what was actually harmful for men and for women and what kind of relationships were most healthy and people who had androgynous identities or identified androgynously in terms of gender performance had healthier, more satisfying, long-lasting relationships. And androgyny not being the absence of masculinity and femininity, but actually the presence of both. And that's from Sandra Bem's work for anyone who's interested in looking up research about androgyny. But the idea is that when we present as having both masculine and feminine characteristics, both men and women, that we're actually healthier for it. Mm. There's nothing wrong with having feminine characteristics Mm -hmm. as a woman or as a man, especially if you balance those out with also having masculine characteristics. Mm. But I remember challenging some of those, those things that I heard in John Eldridge's work about this prototypical masculine warrior type of man, particularly in the church and how that was the most godly form of masculinity and started to have conversations with the man who would eventually become my husband as we talked about masculinity and started to deconstruct this, this term, be a man. And I remember thinking we had this conversation one time, it was so pivotal where we were saying, well, what, is there anything that you would say that be a man means that you wouldn't also want for a woman. A, a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if there are things that you wouldn't want for a woman, is that because that they're, they're not good for a man either or because it's not okay for women to do those things. And so starting to, to pull apart what that phrase means. And I remember us having a conversation where we made sort of a pact with each other. where We said that maybe the appropriate response would be, you can do a better job of being human in this moment, or let's, let's be more adult. Mm. But again, if you're using those phrases, not to shame someone out of emotion, not to shame someone out of their experience, but to say, you know, you're staying in a place that's harmful for you emotionally. And so why don't you come towards me and I'll comfort you and then we'll move towards emotional health as humans. Again, that doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. But 
I put together, but it's better. Some, but it's better yeah. <laughs> I put together some, some ideas about what to do. Cause I think you're right, Michael, we have to have, we have to have some practical takeaways for people who feel like, but I, I don't want to just swing to the other end of the spectrum because that also doesn't reflect my humanness and my, my sense of identity. And so to the men who are listening and to the women who are listening, I think these apply to all of you because it's about being healthy as a human. And I want to say as a feminist, I think it's important to say this. I love men. I love them. I have so many men in my life who are incredibly inspiring and transformative. And in fact, in fact, I feel like I can love men because I have so many men in my life who are good and loving and kind and powerful in ways that are inspiring to me. And so Men are not threatening to me. Men are not dangerous to me. But masculinity has been something that has been hurtful to me and other women that I know and love. So here are some of my recommendations. As a therapist who works with men, as a researcher who looks at gender narratives and how they help and hurt relationships and people, emotional closeness and vulnerability is an asset to your life. Practicing closeness with people, particularly with men, sharing your feelings, talking about things that are painful and scary for you can actually be a richer way to exist. It helps you feel close to people. It helps you feel less alone. Try practicing power with, not power over. And so this looks like equality. Perhaps example of that would be when you're going to speak, try asking a question or try thinking about the endeavors that are already existing that are meaningful and building those people in your life up instead of starting your own initiative, thinking about how you can partner with people. And when you do something successful, remember to challenge the narrative of the lone genius, to remember all of the people who supported you to get there. Mm. Not that it isn't yours to take pride in, but to remember that as people, it's very rare for us to do things completely alone, especially things that are meaningful and transformative. Try to move towards your fears, not shoving them down. So when you have a sense of becoming aware of something that's scary for you, perhaps invite that fear out for a beer. Mm. Go think about spending some time with that fear and asking yourself, where does that come from? How is it helping you? How is it hurting you? And try going to therapy. Maybe even to ask someone to help you sift through some of the things that you heard on this podcast. You might even try to go to therapy if you feel angry about this podcast. You might try to go to therapy if you felt like it brought up sadness for you. It sometimes can be easier to start going to therapy with a woman because men are often socialized to connect emotionally with other women more than they are with other men. So if it feels scary, try going with a woman. And if you feel open for it, try going to therapy with a man. Another idea is to join a men's group, something where instead of doing just fantasy football, you're talking about feelings, you're practicing sensitivity, you're going around and supporting organizations and people and women. Try doing a fundraiser for a rape relief shelter with some of your men, friends. And find other ways to bind and bond with people besides putting each other down or covering up your pain with humor. If you see someone you know is hurting, instead of freezing in awkwardness and changing the subject, try asking them to tell you about it or saying to them, I know it might be hard to talk about it, but if you ever want to, I'll listen and we can push through the awkwardness together. Try taking phrases out of your vocabulary like being a man or stop crying like a girl. Try thinking about what a healthy alternative would be. Try challenging something that Terry Coopers calls pathological arrhythmicity, the way that women have actually 
gotten comfortable to the idea of cycles in the earth, cycles in emotions, cycles in relationship, and the idea that we can have a rhythm, the earth has a rhythm, and that we can learn to be in tune with that and benefit from that. There are some books that I might recommend reading, the work of Robert Jensen, things like Getting Off, a book where he talks about pornography and its relationship to masculinity, Terry Cooper's work, Revisioning Men's Lives, and Carol Gilligan's work, particularly around the ethics of justice and ethics of care, as well as The Birth of Pleasure. There's work by Jackson Katz and Michael Kimmel that talks about masculinity and the toxicity of it. There's even a great documentary called The Mask You Live In, if that's a good place for you to start. I'm sitting here chatting with Brendan Kwiatkowski, a PhD student at University of Edinburgh. He's a Canadian teacher and has done research about emotional issues relating to boys in education. You can follow him on Instagram at remasculate. So why this topic? So the short answer is that when I was doing my research, I found that 81% of students diagnosed with emotional and behavioral disorders were male. And I wanted to figure out why. Why are they at such a high risk of suicide, of failing classes, being expelled, being arrested? And the most convincing research I found had to do with society's scripting around masculinity. Mm. Okay, is that that's the short answer? That's the short What's answer. What's the long answer? <laughs> the long answer is that from a young age, early elementary school, I always had this sense that there was a part of me, an emotional part of me, that I couldn't fully express, particularly among my male friends. The females around me, I felt like that part of themselves could be emotionally expressed. Mm. And I, I think incorrectly assumed but it felt like other males my age did not have that longing for an emotional connection in the same way that I did. Mm -hmm. And so even though I could fit in throughout the majority of my life, this research has caused me to reflect and realize that there was a lot of alone feelings, feeling like I had to restrict a part of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you get into starting the research? Tell me, tell me about that process, what your research question was. I was going to see if that if I could do a year-long program with a bunch of grade 11 boys, the typical problematic behavioral issue boys, if I could somehow, if I could increase their emotional intelligence yeah. and increase, decrease their maladaptive behaviors. Okay. And the majority of them I had built a relationship with, fortunately, mm. playing intramural sports with nice. them ahead okay. of time. So the, that helped initially for the buy-in. Yeah, and his sports within this restrictive masculine framework? Is that an important way of forming connections? It's definitely one of the traditional tenets yeah. of masculinity mm -hmm. that allowed these boys to be blunt, allowed them to respect me more because mm -hmm. they saw that I could physically perform in a way that they could respect wow. on, this, on the court. Huh. So it was easy to transfer that into a session. Yeah, which I feel the tension in because it's like you're trying to actually reauthor what masculinity means but the reason that you were able to do that is because the, there was buy-in through these traditional masculine scripts that is the awkward balance mm -hmm. and some of the research shows that in order to be emotionally expressive and connected to your emotions often one of the factors is that there is some other masculine tenant that you do adhere to more mm. closely so you're more able to be emotionally expressive if you're also a jock right. there's almost that freedom 
to do something if you adhere to one tenant of traditional masculinity. Wow. Okay. So then you engaged in this year-long program and what kind of stuff happened over that year? So the first psychoeducational. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of like conflict resolutions. We brought in counselors and almost had more group counseling sessions of wow. going through emotions, trying to share our emotions get connected to what are emotions mm. and we went through a documentary called the mask you live in mm. which was profound if i could share this one story is that the first time we watched it these boys gave it a standing ovation wow. at the end of the first half an hour which i've never seen students do no. anything of the sort let alone these boys who are generally not engaged in school wow so that really impacted them then. yeah mm-hmm. that the fact of watching stories and hearing how gender had been such a constricting experience for these men in these documentaries was mm. so true to their experience. Wow. Then the second semester, after learning all of this, they were mentors for grade seven boys at a local elementary school who also had behavioral problems. Whoa. Okay. And what was the purpose of that? I brought on my teacher partner, who's also a counselor. Yeah. Can we lead through our emotional vulnerability yeah. and mentor these boys and can they in turn take that and mentor younger boys wow and were those grade seven boys also kids with behavioral emotional challenges yes all the grade 11 one boys in my study were diagnosed okay but the boys in grade seven weren't necessarily all diagnosed wow and what kind of changes did you see take place in them over the course of the program i did a mixed method study Mm -hmm. so i was really keen on the quantitative measurements and the, the only quantitative change that did occur is that their levels of restrictive emotionality did improve statistically significant, although it was a small sample size. So it meant that the boys were able to identify and understand their own emotions better by the end of the intervention. Wow. Did you get any qualitative data about what that actually means for their lives and how they experience that? Yeah, quite a bit. Mm. The most basic understandings was one boy realizing he had emotions. Wow. Like it's, it's so powerfully simple and I almost didn't believe it. But his reflections, his ex-interviews, I guess I realized I had emotions. Another boy realized that another participant had emotions. Because they're all presenting this toughness exterior that they end up fooling each other. That that is all that everyone else has as well. And so one boy reflecting, I didn't realize he had feelings and he cares and thinks about things as much as I do. Huh. And so understanding their own emotions. Because generally I would say that their emotions encompassed three types. They had anger, they knew what happiness was, and they knew what meh, okay, I feel nothing was. And that was their amount of emotional diversity. I think what was the clearest learning from my research is how basic their understanding of emotions were. Mm. And if we look at emotional intelligence as something that needs to be practiced and implemented throughout your life in order to develop it more fully, their levels, although they're 16 years old, was at a very immature, young level. Mm. The reason why they have all these defenses is because they didn't know what it was like mm. to share and to how to respond to another man who was being vulnerable. Wow. How can you hold a sacred space for someone sharing something emotionally deep if you aren't connected to your own emotions and understand how significant that is? Mm. Their inability to connect with themselves created an inability to connect with other people? Yes, exactly. Mm. And I think that the research on emotional intelligence is knowing and understanding your own emotions Mm. and in knowing and understanding the emotions of others, Mm -hmm. which is why programs to help increase people's emotional intelligence, like roots of empathy, looking at a baby, understanding what are their needs. 
they're not at that stage of being able to see other other people's needs. Hmm. So speaking more broadly than just the boys who were in your study, but what are some of the things that get in the way of this connection to emotion for men and for boys? Hmm. I think foremost is the lack of positive examples of older from older males. And if you look at the three most restrictive masculinity messages Mm -hmm. in our society, that men must be emotionally stoic, particularly fear and sadness. They must be autonomous and they must be tough. Those things all impact their abilities to form a relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and with others. So it's a disconnect. It's a stunting that impacts the fullness of your relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you feel that any of that got loosened up for you in the process of doing this research? In my own emotions? Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. What I, I, I had said that I really cared about the quantitative data, mm. but by the end, it was their stories and realizing that these are boys that often are marginalized and are overlooked and dismissed and viewed as the black sheep. And they just shine at the chance to share. And we couldn't stop them from talking by the end of the semester. Wow. They just wanted to keep on exploring. They weren't great at listening to other people, but <laughs> they had a chance to actually communicate and mm-hmm. hopefully be seen and heard. And I hope they felt that from me. But the relationships I formed are still ongoing. Mm-hmm. One boy said that it literally saved his life. I found out later that he tried to commit suicide during that semester year and that this boys group was Mm -hmm. one of the most foundational things feeling a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. was one of his the greatest lights in his year and I still have a relationship with him one of the boys said one of my favorite quotes is he said we just sat around and talked and guys don't do that anymore in this time period and it was like weird but good weird (laughs) that sounds like (laughs) such a teenager quote too (laughs) I know what do you think he was trying to say I think he was trying to say He's not practiced Mm. in the art of emotional vulnerability. Mm. And that it felt uncomfortable because it's so new and it's vulnerable. Mm. But that there's an aspect that he really appreciated. Yeah. We just have emotions. We just have them. They're part of our neurobiological Mm. development. And yet there's this story that's placed on top that dampens them down, makes us tuck them away, particularly men. And it's just harmful. It's just not good. And I also teach a psychology class, grade okay. 12 psychology class. And I show the mask you live in, which mm. is the boy experience. And my class was 27 females, two males, which is a right. side story in yeah. and of itself. But at the end of it, a lot of the females are crying and saying, I need to show my boyfriend. I need to show my dad. Or, holy crap, I have done this mm. to my younger brother. I have, I have assumed things and promoted a sense of masculinity that is damaging. I did not see that now. Okay. On that train of thought, what do we need to know as women to protect the emotional lives of boys and men? A couple of things I would tell females. And of course this is generic, but one of the things is to make sure that you don't give a dual message to Mm -hmm. the men in your life, Mm -hmm. that you need to be tough. You need to take control and be in charge. But then when you're in relationship, like maybe a romantic relationship or just even a friendship, then you want them to be emotionally sensitive. And so if you expect them to not be in 90% of their interactions and then expect them to all of a sudden know what it's like to be emotionally attuned to someone else, that's not a realistic expectation to have. To recognize the necessity for a wide variety of emotions and 
from the girls in my class, I actually asked them this question and their responses were, what can women do? Yeah. Well, we can stop holding up men who achieve success and are rich and are athletes as better human beings as a such, as mm-hmm. such. Mm-hmm. So not like any of those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad to be successful or to be athletic, but to expect and put pressure on guys to be these things. Yeah. As if there's only one way to be an ideal male. Yeah. Wow. So from the mouth of one of the participants in my study, here was his final reflections on everything that he had learned. For a man to show his feelings, I feel it's kind of like for people, it's seeing an extinct animal come back to life or something. It's weird to see when a man cries. When a full-grown man cries, it's hard to watch. And it's sad because you hardly see it. I feel like if people opened up more, I feel like this problem with hiding your emotions and people feeling trapped and suicidal and having depression and having all these things that come from hiding their emotions, if they let out their emotions and explained how they felt to people and showed people how they felt more than just hiding it under a hat or putting your hood on or something, it can change your day, it can change your week, it can change how you feel for the rest of your life if you don't express those feelings. how toxic masculinity and patriarchy have impacted your life when it feels like you haven't had a moment in your life where they haven't. I can think about how much work I've done in my own life to try and get my voice back after I started to self-silence. And I think about how painful and frustrating it is to speak publicly as an expert on something, as somebody who's educated. And because I mentioned the word patriarchy, they write off every single thing that I say. To constantly be silenced, to feel like I have to walk down the street with my keys in my hand because I don't know if the man who's walking towards me is going to try and sexually assault me. To feel like it's easier to play small, to play dumb, because I don't really feel like having a conflict with somebody in my family about something that I'm actually an expert in. To feel like it's scary to know that most of the women that I know have been sexually assaulted and feel like they're at fault for it. To be afraid to one day have a daughter because I know just because she's born a daughter that she's more likely to experience victimization, sexual objectification, dehumanization. It feels like constantly living with fear and it's frustrating to constantly have to explain to other people what that fear is like and then to be told that it doesn't matter or that I'm making it up or that they're actually feeling threatened because of it that they don't want to have to walk on the other side of the street. They don't want to have to see a woman cross the street because they've never raped anybody. So we've talked a lot about the script that we've all been given as men and how that makes it hard for us to relate to each other how it makes us hard to find an equal place in society to partner with other people well in creating civilization. And we were thinking about like how to take this from a podcast into something more applicable and practical and useful and more socially connected. And so we're going to do, I guess, kind of an experiment that we're pretty excited about. <laughs> 
And these words are going to come out of my mouth, and I don't believe them as I say them. <laughs> but we're going to do a liturgist men's retreat. And I hold on now. I hear. I literally hear all the trigger and all the trauma coming up through our audience. And you're thinking about like sunrise pancake breakfasts. And you're thinking about softball leagues, killing animals, killing animals, and and fundamentalism. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a truly and radically inclusive and welcoming space for men. And that would include all orientations, sexual orientations men could have. That would include all gender identities. Trans men would be welcome at this event. What we're talking about is a space for us to reclaim manliness and masculinity in a way that allows us to really connect with other people, that allows us to not be oppressors or, or people who exploit others, to be open to ourselves and to others with our feelings and our needs, and to connect genuinely and deeply with other people. Just becoming more human, basically, and doing it in a space with men. It's such a rarity, as we've been talking about on this podcast um, for men to have that sort of space of vulnerability and emotional connection, embodiment. And like Mike said, I mean, we've, ne- we've never done anything like this, a men's retreat in the past that sounds like something I would run away from. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully you, by now, if you've been listening to the literature for a while, you can trust us that we're not going to make it that. Um, and we want it to be small. We want it to be intimate. Um, we're going to keep it to 30 tickets for an event. Um, so you're going to want to move quite quickly on this. It's going to be in the Los Angeles area, October 12th through 14th. And uh, again, get it quick because we've already had people express interest in this sort of thing in the past. And this podcast just happened to bring up a need in a way that we wanted to do this sooner than later. And then a small enough group for some real work to be done. So you can head over to theliturgist.com slash events and learn more and grab your ticket there. And there'll be a waiting list if you don't get there quickly enough. Uh, we want to do some more of them. Um, so jump on that waiting list if the tickets are gone by the time you get there. So I'm sure this episode has stirred up many a thought and feeling among you. So you can engage with other listeners and us by going to theliturgist.com slash podcast and looking for the man episode. Or you can go to at the liturgist on Twitter or Instagram or facebook.com slash the liturgist. We'd like to thank the patrons for their support of the show and for making what we do possible as the liturgists. If you're interested in becoming a patron. If you enjoyed the music in today's episode, this was all actually from the upcoming On Earth album. So myself and Tyler Chester uh, started this band called On Earth. It was actually for the Liturgist Podcast music. We just make music that's instrumental. And that's what all this music is today, is On Earth music. And it's coming out August 3rd in streaming and stores everywhere so online. So you can check that out. Thanks to Greg Nordine for some editing. The hosts have been William Matthews, Hillary McBride, Science Mike, and myself, Michael Gunger. Thanks for listening, everybody.